0: I was afraid we'd have uh, almost an empty house and I'm sure that Mr. Lyons mentioned all the people that were gone, but having 40 or 50 of them up at the uh, camp in uh, Cherokee and we have Mr. Rob McNair and, uh, and uh, a number of our other leaders up at the camp in Michigan. And then we had so many ministers out visiting, more than usual. And just uh, so we're glad. Welcome to all of you visitors. We're glad that you're here, especially today. (laughs) We normally have been averaging, when we first moved here from San Diego, as I've mentioned, we had about 70 on average. And we've been averaging recently about 150. So we've more than doubled in the last six and a half years. So we're very grateful for that. And we're growing even faster than we were because of world events. So we probably will get up to, you know, 300 or 400 before too long. And we're hoping to put an addition, as you know, right back here, if God sends us enough money. And remember, brethren, the way to solve that problem, just add some extra zeros. That's all you have to do when you write out. It takes just a few seconds solve all the problems. Anyway, I'm kidding. I don't want to mean pressuring anybody, but I, that's my little little joke about helping the income very easily but i do pray that we can do that because that would save us running around and having to keep changing halls and it would be nice to have one one building you know for our headquarters building where we could continue meeting and not be bumped from time to time by activities as we used to in the halls where we were renting anyway we hope that can happen god is blessing the work and i uh, i know mr lyons mentioned a number of uh, points but i've been going over the go tos they call them prospective members i think it's mr josh Beatty who's leading the singing who keeps those records and sends them up to me and uh we i average i had up the four months of the previous year and the four months recent months of this year every now and then and the latest tally we were up for this latest four-month period up through june uh... two hundred and fifty two over the previous year so it's quite a growth we're getting more and more new people coming and i get reports from all across the united states from our ministers calling and emails and various comments that we're having people come from the other church of god groups some are coming back from worldwide they just got out there you know during the apostasy and they got confused and now they're beginning to come back Plus, of course, dozens of new people. And we hope later it will be hundreds. And I sincerely feel that later it may be thousands. Because as these things happen, people's minds will be open. They'll be willing to listen. When people get scared, they start to think about God and what's going on. So we have the answers, and we can be grateful for that. Now, Mr. Lyons mentioned something here in the announcements. I didn't know that. That's fine. I'm going to mention it all over again. But here from our local paper this morning, in uh, the section on Carolina Living, it says this big, uh, bold headline, A Church Divided. And it's talking about, of course, this Episcopalian movement to allow uh, homosexuals not just to be in the church, but to be ordained. And that is really strange. You know, back in my day, uh, even as I grew up in the 1940s and early 50s, it wouldn't have even been thought of. And uh, they even let them in the church in the first place, unless they repented, of course. Anybody can repent and should. But to think of ordaining people like that, and yet they're having this big uh, 77 million person group, the Episcopalian Church is being wrought with division because of this. Seventy-seven million in that church as a whole. And they're the third largest body, the biggest body of professing Christians is the Roman Catholic. And then you have the Orthodox and then the Episcopal or the Anglican churches of which the American Episcopal Church is a branch. But there are literally millions of people that are all mixed up about what Christianity is all about, even those who think they know something about it. And that's the thing we need to discuss today, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that because I think as we get more and more involved in this world and more of this stuff comes out, it affects even our people and their understanding of what Christianity is all about. What do you think, just what do you mean Christian? That's my my title today, my subject. Just what do you mean Christian? A lot of people say, well, I'm Christian, or my relatives are Christian, or this or that. But frankly, when you think about what the Episcopalians are doing, and a lot of these other people in other churches all over, sincere people, many of them are very sincere, but their model of Christianity, their paradigm, using that word, because that means a whole structure, a whole way of looking at a subject, that paradigm is totally wrong. And why is it so wrong? And why are so many so-called Christians off on the wrong track and are not having God's understanding, are not having God's blessing, and are not going to be in God's kingdom, in at least in the first resurrection, unless they repent. Because they have this total wrong paradigm, a totally different way of looking at Christianity. And the biggest single key, of course, there's so many keys you can look at. As I've always said, the first thing you've got to do, and I've mentioned this every now and then, so you may get tired of hearing it, but you've got to prove and ready to where you know and know that you know that there is a real God, and I had to go through a whole series of things to prove that to myself over the years that there is a real God because i 'm from Missouri, the show me state they call it, where you tend to ask questions we 're not sure of this and that, and make people prove it and When I first came to Ambassador College, where Mr. Armstrong was the President, Herbert W. Armstrong, why I went around the departments, and I talked to Esther Olson, the little old lady who opened the mail and counted the money, and I went here and there. Well, where does the money come from, and who who banks the money, and does Mr. Armstrong see the money, or does he get it, or whatever? And I asked all kinds of questions. And Mr. Armstrong later laughed, several years later, talking to me. He says, Rod, when you first came, I heard you went all over checking up on me. But he said, it was fine. We have nothing to hide, <laughs> and uh, we don't have anything to hide here either. And uh, we are trying to do God's work and preach the truth. But the thing that makes us different is one key thing beside the fact we prove there is a God, but then you have to prove to where you know and know that you know that this particular book, the Bible, is the inspired revelation from God and where you read it like you would read any other book. You don't try to twist it around and say, well, this really doesn't mean this. This means something else. You have to really read it just like you read a mathematics book. So if the Bible says the seventh day is the Sabbath, and you can see in the old calendars, now they're trying to change that. The Catholic Church has got the seventh day, especially in Europe, and they're beginning to get it over here, put it on as Sunday. But always the world has known that domingo, as they call it in Spanish for Sunday, means the first day. And it's the first day, Sunday. And the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And people can just see that. I can always remember a German lady up in, uh, in Nebraska, for Burt McNair, we on our baptizing tour back in 1952, and she was just very zealous and wanted to be baptized, and she was willing to obey God and do everything. But we begin to talk about the Sabbath, and she looked puzzled. And uh, I said, don't you keep the Sabbath? Well, I, I I, I thought Sunday was the Sabbath. And she was very sincere, and I could see she was willing. She didn't understood about unclean meats. She understood about... Just all kinds of things in the Bible and was studying the Bible, but she just, and we went to that and said, well, let's go see. Do you have a calendar here in your kitchen on the wall? And she did. You see the Sabbath this Saturday. Look it up in any dictionary or any, any encyclopedia. And her eyes went, oh, oh, I didn't know. And, and boy, she, she started keeping the Sabbath right away. She told us we could see she was going to. She really meant it. And she came down hundreds of miles, had to leave her husband and get on a Greyhound bus to come all the way down to Texas for the Feast of Tabernacles. And she came up and told us, Hello, she meant it. But she just didn't understand that one thing. But God's Spirit was with her, and she could see it. If you read the Bible, and the Bible says, Thou shalt not kill, and you really believe that, and yet you don't say, Well, yes, but under this circumstance or that circumstance, the Bible says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then it explains that fornication is the same thing as adultery. And you read that and you say, well, that's what the Bible says, and I believe that. I don't have various you know, ways of watering that down or changing it around or trying to get out of it in some way. And the Bible says this or that. So we take the Bible to mean what it says, and, and it says what it means. And through the 60 years almost I've been in God's work, I see that this book is correct, And as I've told you, all these major prophecies, not minor things, that Mr. Armstrong came to understand, many even before I came to college, and then he started explaining them, most of them have already happened or are in the process of happening right now. It's amazing what God does, just spell it out, other things, the whole way of life. So if you learn to say Christianity is what the Bible actually says Christianity ought to be, And, of course, the Bible tells you that Christ set us an example following in His steps. You read that back in 1 Peter 2.21. Christ set us an example. What day did Christ keep as a holy day? The seventh-day Sabbath. How do you know that? Well, the Bible clearly shows and even hurry. Church historians all acknowledge the Jews were keeping the seventh day. There was no mystery about it. He was keeping the same day the Jews were keeping. What holy days was he keeping? Christmas and Easter, no. He kept the days that the Bible talks about and all the rest of it. So a Christian is one who really does follow Christ and does what Christ says. Now, Christ said one basic thing that I want to start out with back here in Luke, just to kind of set the stage and we'll be going through particular things. But back in Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, uh, brethren, and beginning in verse uh, 25, great multitudes went with Christ, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate, and we know the Greek term here is the commentary is all acknowledged. We're not changing around, but it often means comparative. It's a comparative or love less. It's a comparative term. Does not love less his father, and mother, and wife, and children, brothers, and sisters, yes, his own life also. You don't hate your own life, but you're to love it less than you love the God who gave you that life. Where does your breath come from? Where does your brain come from with which you think? It comes from the great God, the Creator. You learn to really believe Him. God says this, which is strange, but I have to apply this to myself, and you have to apply this to yourself. He says back in the Proverbs, "...he who trusts in his own heart is a fool." You can't even fully trust your own heart because you'll try to play games at point, you know, with what you think and what you'd like and so on. But anyway, "...they many came to him and he told them, if you come to me and don't love less, even your dearest relatives and your own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." Now, my wife knows that I love God more than I love her. And I love her very dearly because she's absolutely beautiful to me, and she's kind and good and been taking care of me even more than ever. She has been taking care of me for about 31 years, and that's why I'm here, (laughs) among other reasons. But especially since my stroke, she's been helping me all the time in a special way. But I love God more. Everything good and kind and beautiful and everything else I see in my wife is there because God put it there. God made her. God made her mind. God made her personality. And of course, she has to develop and use it the right way. But anything good you see in your father, your mother, your wife, your children is only there because God put it there or put there the capacity, you know, to develop that. We don't all develop it perfectly. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you've got to go through Suffering, You've got to go through trial and test. And God tells us that over and over in the Bible. He's not going to give you or me eternal life where we just say, well, I believe in Jesus and that uh, presto chango, you shoot up to heaven and you don't do anything. He wants to know where you really stand. Do you really surrender to the great God? Once you prove that by your attitude and by your actions over a period of trial and testing, through your Christian life then he knows that you will not become another Satan and rebel against him you see so you've got to go through that for which of you intended to build a tower you want to build a skyscraper does not sit down first and count the cost do you have contact with some really big banks or insurance companies to loan you the money and can you get enough money? Do you know about enough about building so you know how to contract out and get all this done and you know all the rest of it, all the permits and everything else? You've got to think of the whole thing. Otherwise they'll say you stopped and make fun of you. And who is not it what came going against another does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with ten thousand men to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand. Notice what Jesus said. The other army is going to be twice as big as you are. How can you overcome your human nature? How can you overcome the world? How can you overcome Satan, the devil? In a way, they're more powerful than you are, and all three of them together are much more powerful. The only way you'll do it, as you come to see in real Christianity, is to absolutely surrender to God and believe that God will give you the Holy Spirit. Then you can overcome yourself and the world and the devil. Otherwise, you can't. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. In your mind and heart, you're supposed to forsake everything and say, God, I am giving my life to you. And I mean it. Everything I am, everything I have, everything I hope to be. Because it came from you anyway. So you have to have that attitude. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the manure pile, the dunghill. But men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, he's saying here even what he kind of describes back in Revelation chapter 3 about the Laodiceans. He says, I'll spew you out because you're neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, you see. He says, you've got to go all out you're supposed to be the salt of the earth. But if that very salt has lost its flavor to where you just kind of drift along and you're not excited about it, why, you're not really the kind of Christian that God wants in His kingdom. I want to give you just overview here of some things here that you can... I won't try to go through every Scripture on these things, but here are four key priorities you want to put first things first. What are the key, the basic priorities in order that God wants you to have in your in your Christian life, if you're a real Christian? I know I had a cousin, and a few of my friends and I went out to Boise, Idaho, way back in 1949, just the summer before I came to Ambassador College, and he was successful. He was the second-ranking man in the whole Bureau of Reclamation for over about five states, a great Grand Coulee Dam and all these great big... Uh, Bureau of Reclamation projects in the Northwest, and we stayed with him for a few days. My grandmother had helped raise him, so she got him to help us, and and he took us in and let us. He had a kind of a, a bunk area down in his basement where his boys had stayed when they grew up, and boys stayed there, so he put us there. But he came down and had a blackboard, and he grew this great big. He saw I was really interested in religion. I was already hearing Mr. Armstrong, and I talked to him some about that. And he said, here's this big circle. And he said, well, here's the way you need to structure your life. And then he put about one-fourth was your job and and one-half was your uh, family and and uh, more was for your fun and recreation and, and other things. He had four or five things. And then he had a little sliver, and that was for your religion. He says, now, religion doesn't need to intrude over all these other things. You don't want to get it out of proportion, Rod, because that wouldn't be balanced. So he showed me how to be balanced, make religion be a little sliver in your life, you see. And uh, he was successful, and uh, he thought that was the way to live. But, of course, he wasn't successful spiritually. He had already had one divorce, and I think later he got another one, which is beside the point. But nevertheless, he didn't know God, of course, and I came to later realize that even though he was a nice man. Know your religion... Number one of your priorities ought to be your relationship with God and Christ. And Christ is God, but I'll just put it down so you understand. Your relationship with God and Christ, that you give your life to God and you really mean it. My wife and I have a wonderful CD of one of the music teachers at Ambassador College in Big Sandy. He was a friend of mine and I want to keep in touch with him a very wonderful i think probably the best male singer in the whole church of god we've ever had his name was roger bryant and he just has one gorgeous religious song right after the other and uh we were just as i was finishing getting dressed she had on i'll walk with god and roger used to sing that in our service at big sandy because sometimes i'd ask him to and he knew that was one of my favorites and it's just beautiful But he has one beautiful song in there after the other, The Holy City and and uh, If with all your heart you seek me, you shall surely find me and all these other songs that are just beautiful. I'll walk with God. And you've got to walk with God and talk with God and commune with God and have God and Christ at the center of your life. That is relationship number one. That is priority number one. That you put your hand, so to speak, in the hand of your Creator and say, God, I'm going with you no matter what. And you mean it. But you will go not sentimentally with the Methodist or Baptist or Episcopal or Catholic God. You will go with the God of the Bible. You will go with the God of the Bible. And you will walk with that God by drinking into the Bible and feeding upon it and learning to think like God thinks. Because the more you walk with God and do it, you will understand, brethren, and I mean it, you will come to understand that the Bible is the revelation of the mind of God. There are literally hundreds of little things, and I can't describe them all in a sermon. I've intimated about some of these things. Someday we'd maybe just give a great big list, but it wouldn't mean anything to you unless you proved it to yourself. But recently, the doctors have rediscovered the fact that women nursing their children is far better. The children develop far better in about five different ways if they had breast milk from their own mother. For a while, they made fun of that. I know my own mother has, under the old doctor's ideas, that, well, that wasn't good and the formulas were better. And then you find out that circumcising baby boys is not some old Jewish, uh, crazy religious idea that hurts little boys. It protects, and they're now having... Hundreds of millions of men, especially in Africa, circumcised young men and baby boys because they find it protects people from AIDS, from dying of that horrible disease, which is wiping out whole civilizations over there. Why did God give those laws? Even little laws people think, well, that does make sense, all that Old Testament stuff. It's not that Old Testament stuff. It's the mind of the Creator. And the people learn to follow that, it would have saved hundreds of millions of lives. God tells you in the Old Testament, in the statutes, that if you're traveling or going here and there, like the Israelites were, following, you know, the fire by night and the pillar of the cloud by day, if you have to relieve yourself, you're to go outside and you're to take a, a, a trowel or, or a shovel, an instrument, and cover your refuse. That doesn't sound pretty, I understand that, but God deals with very plain things. Oh, that was just old. No, that's not old fashioned. They didn't do that in Europe back in the 12th and 13th, 14th centuries, and they suffered hundreds of millions of deaths from the Black Plague. And they learned the fact that they had this raw sewage, and that was one of the main contributors to all those people dying. And some of them were really furious at the Jews and began to persecute the Jews and accuse them of using witchcraft or something because they didn't get it. Why didn't they get it? Because in many Jewish communities, they did follow some of those biblical principles of cleanliness, and the rabbis would tell them to do so. And they were better off, far better off, than those around them, although they suffered sometimes by getting some of these things from others or living in that kind of environment. Just dozens and dozens of things. The Bible is the revelation of the way God thinks, the mind of God in every detail. And I hope all of us can come to understand that more fully. Now, your second priority in your life should be your family. Beside God, God is making a family. He wants us to be full sons of God, as he says back in Luke 20, sons of the resurrection, for we'll be spirit beings in the very family of God. He wants us to act like a family. And uh, the very fine sermonette we heard was talking some about the love and the kindness in the church we ought to have to love one another. And that's a way of life that we ought to be learning. But the family, your own family, of course, is first. You've got to take care of your family. And that comes after your relationship with God. Because God has to come first. But, as I said and started to explain, my wife doesn't resent my putting God first. Because if I didn't put God first and just tried to love her in my human wisdom, I might get mad at her or desert her or she would get mad at me and desert me or I might do any number of things. The fact she knows I'm trying to serve God is an extra blessing to her, you see. Or her serving God is an extra blessing to me. So you serve God first. Then you can love your neighbor as yourself much better. Third priority should be your job or career. And certainly God says, six days shall a man work, and the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal Thy God. And so you're to work and produce six days, and a man should have a career. And some women, sadly, in our society have to, to keep things going, although I think the time will come when that will not be as necessary in tomorrow's world. But at any rate, that's important. You've got to eat, as we say. Everybody's got to eat. And you need to have a career, and of course it's very fulfilling, And if a woman learns to be a homemaker in the right way, in the right way and would be doing so in the right society where it's appreciated, that can be very fulfilling too. Because the women used to have great big families. They'd have five or ten children and often be out on a farm or out at the edge of town and have all kinds of gardens and help raise that garden so their family got good produce and take care of the children, rear the children. And if they're a successful family, uh, the woman... Helps hire the hired servants and watch over the, even the, you know, repairs on the house and brings in, as it says in Proverbs 31, the food from afar and the shopping, saving money, organizing the whole system, the family system and activities in that way. And that can be very fulfilling. It should be a very honorable thing. Modern people often make fun of that, which they should not. The fourth thing, the fourth priority, would be your fun, sports, travel, hobbies, and so on, you know. Today, often people put that first. They want personal fulfillment. That is, they want to travel and stay up night and go to nightclubs, and that's number one. And next comes their family. Next comes God, if He comes in at all, and so on. But at any rate, that's last. But it should be there. You want personal fulfillment. And in God's way of life, you do get that. Boy, I'll tell you, brethren, tomorrow's world, there's going to be an awful lot of personal fulfillment, more than people realize And it won't be dull or boring. Some of the young people think it's not dull or boring unless you're committing adultery or seeing some uh, nudie-cutie show or something like that. But everyone will understand the purpose of life and the purpose of marriage and the right use of sex in marriage and to have children and build a family and they can deeply enjoy their mate, which they should do, and travel all over the world in safety. And there'll be one language... So when you get to Germany, you won't be wondering what the sign says or what they're trying to say. And, uh, you know, all this kind of thing, the whole thing will be different than it is today. And we'll have beautiful, gorgeous national parks all over the United States and all over Africa and all over Asia, things to see and do that are wholesome and yet very interesting. And God's way of life is the abundant life. So that is the fourth priority. But remember now, back here in Luke Uh, Luke 14, 33 So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt, you're to be the salt of the earth, has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? So we're to be the salt, we're to go all out to fulfill these priorities in our life in the right way, God's way. Now part of what real Christianity is all about Yet again, that's being watered down. Some of the old Protestants had part of this. Not all of it right. But it's described at the beginning of the Christian church here in Acts. If you turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I want to drink a little bit of this tea here. The Apostle Peter (coughs) was giving this inspired sermon on the day of Pentecost at the beginning of the New Testament church, and he talked about Christ. Verse uh, G- uh, verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So it talks all the way through about Christ and the importance of Christ. And brethren, I have talked to our leaders here recently, including, I think, the very last luncheon meeting we had, <clears throat> and uh, I know that we need to do that more. We don't forsake take talking about Christ, but we do not do that, I think, in the church and the ministry as much as we should. Mr. Armstrong apologized himself two or three times in public years ago. He said, Brethren, I've sort of led in this because the Protestants go over here and they talk about Jesus, love Jesus, give your heart to the Lord, and sweet Jesus, and all this. The wrong Jesus, of course, not the Jesus of the Bible. And so he was trying to get away from that and show how we've got to do what Jesus said and keep the laws of God. But, he said, we've also got to talk about Jesus more and of that profound feeling about what Jesus Christ did for us. And I want to ask all of you, you brethren around the world who see this later on the tape, we must do this as the church of God. As we get closer to the end, we must develop a more profound feeling and a passion in a sense. To love Jesus Christ, to have a love affair with Jesus Christ, to love Him. You young people, you could have rock stars and sports stars and all that, but frankly, our superstar should be Jesus Christ. I love Christ. I adore Him. I want to be like Him. I want Him to live His life in me. That should be our attitude, and we should develop a passion for that. So we're all witnesses of Jesus and how He was resurrected. And the apostles went out and said that over and over at the beginning of the church. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this this fire from heaven and speaking in tongues, which you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, What Lord did David have? He had no human Lord, yet there are two lords above him. Two lords above David. The Lord, God the Father, said to David's immediate Lord, who had to be the God of the Old Testament, the rock of Israel, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord means boss. And Christ means the anointed one, the one to come with the Holy Spirit, to magnify the law, to set us the example, and later to die for us and shed his blood on the cross so we can be forgiven. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus, Lord in Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. These were Jews, say they might have turned on Christ to kill him, but they were being convicted here. And they said to Peter, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said, Repent. And that's the very first thing. And brethren, most Protestants are never taught that. I was never taught that in the mainstream church I grew up in. Once in a long time the minister says it. I know that. Billy Graham sometimes says repent, but it's virtually never explained that repentance is not just being sorry for sin, but being sorry for breaking God's law. 1 John 3, 4 Sin is the transgression or breaking of the commandments That's what sin is And you repent of breaking the commandments It means you're to be not only sorry but terribly sorry So sorry you'll turn around and go the other way Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit God's very character His nature is put in you For the promise is to you and to all your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. So this promise comes right down to our time. A true Christian has gone through that process. Just what do you mean Christian? A true Christian has really gone through that process of a total surrender to Jesus Christ. And he has his mind on Christ. Notice back in chapter 4 of Acts, Paul or Peter said here, in verse 10 let it be known to you all and to all the people of israel that by the name they constantly talked about christ much more than we do most more than people do today that by the name of jesus christ of nazareth whom you crucified whom god raised from the dead by him this man stands here before you whole this is the stone christ was the rock it mentions the rock of israel throughout the old testament in First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says that rock was Christ. Christ was the God of Israel. Christ was the one who led them around. He was the representative of the God family who did all that. So this is the stone rejected by you, he says, you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, only through Jesus Christ. And so we've got to have that profound feeling about Jesus Christ and what he did and what he is. Now turn to Acts chapter 10, if you would. Here we find Jesus preaching to these Gentiles, the first Gentiles called, uh, the one, the Ethiopian eunuch, by the way, brethren, was not a complete Gentile. He was probably a black man, but he was already a what? He was what they called a God-fearer or proselyte of the gate because he was coming or had been up to Jerusalem to worship you see if he were just a normal man in Africa or Asia or somewhere he wouldn't have been coming up to Jerusalem to worship somehow he had learned about the God of Israel and he had already started to worship that God or he wouldn't hear complete total Gentiles who had been in pagan worship before and so Peter was sent to them And they told him about how God had opened their minds to call for him. And then in verse 34, Acts 10, verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. And Mr. Pierre was describing that beautiful song where it shows we're all of different hues and different backgrounds and we're woven together into one fabric. And that's true. Through God's Spirit, we're to become one in Christ Jesus. And we to understand that God shows no partiality in that way. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. The Word, now here He talks about what the message should be, which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, His Lord of all. That Word, you know, which pro- proclaimed throughout all Judea, began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. The Word, at first, brethren, was focusing on Jesus Christ. Now, some of you will say, how come you talk so much about prophecy? Well, the message of Jesus Christ, recent, very recent, death and resurrection, was dramatic, exciting. And that was the main thing they emphasized then, and that was very important because so many of them had friends or relatives in in Israel there who had actually seen it. Because Christ said, or Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ was seen by over 500 brethren at one time after His resurrection. So it got around. Today we must still talk about that, but we may also talk about prophecy, because that's the big thing God is beginning to do and going to do. But we must not forget this first part either, and focus people on the real Christ, not the Protestant sweet Jesus, but the real Christ of the Bible that word you know how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him and we are witnesses of these things uh, which he did in the land of the Jews in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree not uh, and God raised him up he constantly talked about that God raised Jesus up they kept saying he is risen he is risen and showed him openly And it goes on and shows how God has ordained him to be the judge of the living and the dead. So Christ is our coming judge as well as our Savior. And our message must include that. Our thoughts when we think about, I am a Christian. Okay, you're a Christian. Do you think very much about Jesus Christ? Do you constantly realize that I am a forgiven sinner? As I preached a sermon years ago, we are the church of the forgiven. If we're really converted, all of us have had to be forgiven. All of us have made terrible mistakes in the past. And we continue to make mistakes, not as terrible as in the past, hopefully. But we don't keep the Sabbath perfectly. We don't think every thought the way Christ would think it. We still have vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. We've got to work on it, work on it, work on it, overcome all the days of our lives. So we've got to constantly be repenting and realizing we need Christ's blood to cover our sins. He will continue to clean us up, as it says there in 1 John chapter 1. But anyway, we want to have that attitude and really think about that a very great deal about the true Christ of the Bible. Now turn to chapter 20 here of Acts. Chapter 20, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. Acts 20, verse 20. Paul talks about how he kept back nothing from these elders who had come over there from Ephesus, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to the Greeks. Repentance... Yes, you've got to repent, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in Christ, and you believe Christ, as Mr. Armstrong said. You don't just believe in Christ, but you you, you know He's there. The devil knows He's there, but you believe Him too. You believe what He said when He said, If you would enter into life, keep the commandments, plural, and name some of them, back in uh, Matthew 19, verse 17, you believe that. You don't use these trick Protestant arguments. Well, Paul did away with them. Or they were all nailed to the cross. Or blah, blah, blah. They've got about five or six arguments to try to do away with them. And they cannot be done away with, if you're honest with what the Bible says very, very clearly. So you are to believe Christ. And God wants you to do that in the right way. Anyway, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. And... I don't know what's going to happen except the Holy Spirit testifies in every sitting saying that chains and tribulations await me, but I don't care. I'm going to go there anyway. For I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Notice that, brethren, in verse 24. One man left our fellowship and took others with him because he was all upset that we were talking too much about Christ and we talked about the gospel of Christ and the gospel of grace. And we didn't every single time call it the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, it is the gospel of the kingdom of God, but it also is the gospel of grace, God's forgiveness. It is also the gospel of Christ. There are several different ways the Bible itself explains that gospel. So here it says to testify to the gospel of the grace of Christ, God's mercy through Jesus Christ. And we must keep talking about that. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I've gone preaching, what? Now it mentions the kingdom of God, yes. That's the major terminology used most of the time. But it also, the Bible calls it, the gospel of grace and the gospel of Christ and so on. The gospel of the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now brethren, that's what we try to do in this church, as most of you know. And we have some people here that are newer, and I don't know all of you visitors. Maybe some of you have been in the church 30 or 40 years. But anyway, hope I can help you. There's something new we can give you in in this sermon. We do want to give you the whole counsel of God. And that's one thing Mr. Armstrong tried to teach us to do, and that's one thing we try to do with all of our hearts. And we don't do it perfectly, but we do follow what he really taught, not what a couple of harsh dictators try to say that he taught. Those guys didn't even really know Mr. Armstrong anyway. And as Mr. Partin can tell you, who's sitting here and I, one of them calls himself a prophet, and he says Mr. Armstrong knew him, or he was with Mr. Armstrong, but Mr. Armstrong would not recognize him on the street if he saw him. I mean that. There's no way. He was in college, but he was just among hundreds of students, and, and very indis- undistinguishable. But at any rate, We are carrying on that work because Mr. Partin and I and some of us helped Mr. Armstrong build this work and we're reviving this work now and we know what we're doing because we helped him build the work in the first place. And we're carrying it on. And we do honor very much what God did through Mr. Armstrong, but we do not worship Mr. Armstrong as some of these others profess to do. They don't really because they change things around. They profess to worship, you know, every single word you're supposed to follow. Of what they think he said in some cases we will grow in grace and in knowledge and add pieces but not to do away with any of the basic truths he gave we've never done that never will do that and i'm sure all of you older brethren understand that because i've been here 60 years and i haven't done away with anything and uh you know any basic thing he taught the only thing people could point to of any consequences makeup and mr armstrong went back and forth on that three different times did he ever go back and forth three different times on the Sabbath? No. Did he ever go back and forth three different times on the Holy Days? No. Did he ever go back and forth on Christmas, Easter, the Trinity, or any of those things? No. But he just thought women were wearing too much of it a couple of times and made it verboten, as the Germans would say. And then he'd, something else would come up and and they'd decide to change it back and let them wear it. But he'd say, well, we should do it in moderation. If women wear it, they should wear it in moderation. And that's true. We shouldn't wear it like some Hollywood actress or something. It just changed our face drastically. But he went back and forth on that, and we will grow. We've grown in certain technical knowledge of the Bible and prophecy, and he would want us to. He would say, of course, Rod, I told you to keep growing in grace and in knowledge. Of course we're to keep growing. That's not some attack on Mr. Armstrong at all. So God wants us to grow in grace and in knowledge. But God says here, Paul says, i have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And brethren, we want you to read the entire Bible. We want you to let the New Testament interpret the Old, of course, as we know it does. But there's no part of the Bible that we're not to understand. And if any of you have questions, just come up and ask some of our ministers. And if we don't know the answer, we'll get it. There's not one part of the Bible we're afraid of. Not one verse in the Bible we're afraid of. I know I've had, when I was a young man, I shouldn't have argued with them, I guess, but I did it for fun. They had these Mormon missionaries uh, right across from my hotel. I stayed at the Cumberland Hotel at Marble Arch at the top of uh, Park Lane in London. And Dick took his parents over uh, on the continent. He'd taken me there for five and a half weeks, and they came over, and he took them over, and I was left behind. You know the Tim Hayes book, Left Behind. I was left behind <laughs> for two and a half weeks, all alone. So I tried to go up and down the uh, what's the street and go to Hoyle's or Foyle's and these big bookstores. But sometimes I'd wander over to the Orators' Corner, where they'd ask all these questions and argue. Very famous place. So these Mormon missionary young men would be there, and they really sounded good. But then later I'd catch them and ask them a few questions. And if you get them a a little bit off, just a little bit off their line of scriptures they're familiar with, they're lost. They don't know where they are. And the same thing about the Jehovah Witness that used to come to the door. Uh, Again, I would invite the men occasionally when I was a young preacher. I just thought it would be fun. And you get them a little (laughs) bit off from what they're used to, and they're they're lost. Mr. Armstrong used to tell the joke about the drunk man that was uh, really uh, very drunk, And the London Fog, now they have, uh, of course, a brand of of, uh, raincoats called London Fog. But anyway, London Fog used to be much worse because they had the incinerator burning and other things. They've cleaned it up somewhat more than it used to be. But the fog used to be really bad, and it was dangerous then, too, really heavy. But this man was walking around drunk, and he kept bumping into this light post. And he'd go here, and then he'd bump, and finally he said, Lost! Lost in an, in an impenetrable forest. And, uh, he up and he thought each one was a different tree. And uh, But uh, that's the way these guys are with the Bible. They're they're lost in an impenetrable forest because they don't really know the Bible. They just know this little thin line of Scriptures they're used to. And they don't understand passages back in Micah and back in Zephaniah and back in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And uh, they, they're not familiar with that at all. I don't mean that we're all walking, talking, Bible dictionaries, but we do read all those and we understand them all. Uh, basically we really do it and we can explain them to the either immediately or later if we don't have the answer right now. Right into our letter answer department. Now I'll give Mr. Amon a stroke now. He'll have a stroke too. <laughs> if you all write tomorrow. But he has, he has our basic things there and he will, he can answer those. But we do understand them all. Now another thing, about real Christianity as I say is this tremendous emphasis on Jesus Christ that we ought to have and brethren when you think about being a Christian do you ever think in your mind who am I I am a Christian people say what are you what do you believe I am a Christian I'm a follower of Jesus Christ I really follow Jesus Christ I follow what Jesus Christ really said I am a Christian and I hope all of us can begin to think about that more and try to try to be that way Boy, Paul did. He really emphasized it in so many ways. Back here in Philippians chapter 1, he writes to the Philippian church. In Philippians 1 and in verse 18, he says, "...what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is priest." Some people were preaching Christ, as he explains, even to try to get him into trouble somehow. And in this I rejoice and will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, I don't do that perfectly at all, but in the last several months, even more than ever, as I've had this stroke, and I, you know, can't function as I should, and often people have a stroke, then they have another stroke, and then they have another stroke or two, and die. I'm familiar with that. And as I told you, brethren, this work does not just depend on me. This is the work of the living Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has already given me over 79 years. I'm already nine years older than King David was 3,000 years ago. And it says he was old and full of days at age 70. So I understand that. So I hope that I can honor Christ whether by life or by death. And my mind is focused more on that at this point in my life than ever, obviously, because as you get older in general, all of you older people know what I mean. Things go wrong and you sense your mortality and you realize you might not live forever in this flesh. It kind of makes you get real after a while, you know. You think, we better not play with it. We better do it, really do it. So he said, I want Christ to be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. My whole purpose in living is to serve Christ and honor Christ, to represent Christ, or to die, gain. If you died and you're really serving Christ, then you don't have any more trials and you don't have any more tests. You got it made. You see what I mean? And that might be even easier in many cases. But Paul goes on, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. I can accomplish more Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. He wasn't sure. He was kind of thinking out loud as God inspired him to write this. I'm sure that was what was happening right here. And I used to teach the Epistles of Paul class and meditated on these things and why they were said the way they were. I'm sure God just let him sort of think out loud here as he wrote and yet God guided it because he went ahead and was hard pressed having a desire to depart and be with Christ which is far better Humanly, I could just be through with all my problems. I'd just go to sleep and wake up at the last trump. That'd be easy. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So I think that way once in a while, I, I think, I hope that verse means me too, that I can carry on and continue to serve you and help bring out certain special things that perhaps I can do simply because I've been along around so long. And uh, I'm not better than Mr. Ames or Mr. Uh, Dr. Winnell or other men because many of them are very, very dedicated. Some have strengths that I don't have at all. But anyway, sometimes God may keep some of us around just for the sake of the work. "...that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct, brethren," he said, "...the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ." Ooh, that's bad, this former minister said. The gospel of Christ, we don't want to talk about that. We talk about the gospel of the kingdom of God. No, we also talk about the gospel of Christ." We also talk about the gospel of grace. It's okay. It's okay. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one's spirit. And God wants us to be together. God doesn't want division. He wants us to be together with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we should work together. We should build this family church, this atmosphere of love and kindness and service to one another in every way we possibly can. And that reflects, of course, the true Jesus Christ. And again, I will come back over and over to this, but one key verse that you must always think of in relation to any form of true Christianity, and that is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. My favorite verse Because it's the one verse, best one verse definition of Christianity in the Bible. Many verses touch on parts of it, but just to put it in one verse, Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. The old self has to die. Nevertheless, I live. He wasn't dead. But Christ lives in me. That's the key. True Christianity is not just believing on Christ, believing He lived. The devils know that. The demons know that and tremble, James said. They know there is a God. They know there is a Christ. But they don't obey Him. Jesus does not live in them through the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in me, Paul wrote. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of, and we have checked this thoroughly, not just faith in, but the genitive is in there, belonging. The faith of Jesus Christ. So we're to live by that. The faith of Jesus Christ who loved me and gave Himself for me. So remember that. That is what true Christianity is all about. Now, and then getting into personal aspects of Christianity, which Mr. Pierre covered some of these things very well, and I'm glad he did. He just covered it in a different uh, chapter. I want to go back to what I sometimes call the, the Christian living chapter in the book of Romans. Romans 12. You know, they often say 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, telling you what love is. And uh, uh, Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. And this is, I call, the Christian living chapter. And Paul writes, "...I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Give your life to God. A living, a lively sacrifice, not a dead, do-nothing sacrifice." but actively giving your life to God, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And he tells you your whole mind should be transformed. And he says then, so we being many, verse 5, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Yes, we're all bound together through God's Spirit. He says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't say you love someone and then try to hurt them or get back at them or undermine them or stab them in the back. Abhor what is evil. It's not wrong to do that. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Deeply appreciate what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Try to develop that spirit, that family spirit of love and giving and sharing in the church of God, which is our extended, our spiritual family. Be kindly affectioned with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Paul tells us in Galatians to do good to all men but especially the household of God. So you are to try to help those in the household of God. Once in a while, you know, we gave with our disaster fund to this, this little town in Kansas that got almost wiped out by this hurricane I think it was years ago and we sent some money down for the Katrina victims but we tried to especially send money specifically to some of our church families because other people take care of their family and in a sense of giving you know charity starts at home as you know you help your own family first if it's a matter of giving and helping your ties belong to God but on the other hand your extra giving and helping even that should be directed toward people in the church as best you can and that's what God wants us to do so he tells us giving preference to one another this family spirit not lagging in diligence fervent in spirit serving the Lord rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Don't give up and quit when trials come. It's easy to do. I've had many trials and many people coming after me or trying to stab me in the back or get rid of me or whatever, and you just have to wait on God. And God always takes care of it if you'll do that. But we've got to have that that steadfastness and don't give up and quit easily at all. Patient in tribulation continuing steadfastly in prayer, constantly praying to God, distributing to the needs of the saints. You should try to help the others in the church primarily. As I've said, brethren, and I have encouraged our men, and we've talked about it some of our executive lunches we have nearly every Tuesday or Wednesday, our leading ministers eat eat lunch together and talk over church policies because we can do that every week where the council of elders can just come in you know, two or three times a year, and then we have one or two meetings by phone. But they're out, and but we have a kind of get-together almost every week in, in this other situation, which is very good. And we do want to give out to more people and help others more, and God wants us to do that as the end approaches. We hope we can do more of that and show people that we love them, outsiders, and especially those in the church or people in your own neighborhood sometime. You, if we took all of our money and gave it to the starving people in Bangladesh or India or Africa or the Middle East, we could send every single dime that comes in in one year. It would all be gone in a few days or maybe a few hours as far as that's concerned. It, would do, it wouldn't do much good because they don't understand God. They'd go right back to their wrong ways of life, you see, be right back in the same predicament again. So if you think about that, but who did Christ tell you to help? Your neighbor. If you're walking along and the man's fallen on the ground... The good Samaritan saw the man, you know, on the ground. Then he helped him. He was right there. If your next door neighbor's house burns down, he's not in the church. You can still help him. You may not give all your money. You don't give your regular tithes and offers, but you give extra help and some money and food and let him stay all night or help him in every way you can. We should have this outflowing concern as the body of Christ to everybody and especially to those of the household of God. So we want to have that spirit given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Be very happy when someone is blessed in some way. And weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind one to another. Don't set your mind on high things. Don't just try to kiss up, as the kids say, to the big shots and act important and be the great society people or something. I know in Pasadena uh at headquarters in the house of god why some of the women of the big shots there would all co- collect up in front and they would say is this a such and such dress or isn't there this talk about the styles of dresses they were wearing and and uh show off each other's clothes constantly and and you know it's not wrong to once in a while do something like that but there was a sort of a habit of the big shots hanging together too much frankly and it's better to kind of for all of our ministers and all of us involved in the church to just move around. And I think nearly all of us in this church do that. We try to move around and help. I can't do it quite as much as I did before the stroke. But most of you remember me. I just go all over here and there and stay in, until I got too tired and had to go home because I. Uh, even five years ago I wasn't uh, in my 30s anymore <laughs> but uh, at any rate we want to get around and visit with everybody we can and try to help you and encourage encourage you if we can so we don't want some social hierarchy in the church where some people are the beautiful people as the world calls them you know the Hollywood type people the beautiful people and then there are the other people who are they they're not important no we must not have that so do not be wise in your own opinion Repay to no one evil for evil. Don't try to get even. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Again, don't try to get even. Don't have that spirit of trying to to get even. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Eternal. And again, I can honestly say in 60 years of experience almost, I've seen that happen over and over again, where God eventually takes care of it. He always works it out. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we should try to do that to one another in every way we can. That doesn't mean that we uh, we always must forgive one another spiritually. and I've told our office staff that doesn't mean if someone doesn't fit in a particular job, we've got to keep them there forever to love them. If we hire some young woman in uh, data processing and she doesn't even know how to type and we forgot to ask, of course, we don't forget to ask, but I'm just saying if we did, we've had a wrong... You see what I mean? We'd have a square peg in a round hole and uh, that wouldn't work. That's not fair to her. And if someone else comes along, and we've had men in the ministry, not in our ministry, but in the worldwide church, I was superintendent of ministers for about 12 years, so I had much experience with that. And some of them were just kind of rushed out. They gave good speeches in ambassador club, but they really didn't know how to minister when they got out there. They were a square peg in a round hole. And we had to transfer them. We usually try to save them in the work if they wanted, but they might have to go back and be in editorial or letter answering or some other part of the work. They didn't fit out there talking to people. And so, remember, it's not wrong to have judgment in the way that you deal with the organization, but you're to love people. Your motive should be, how can I honestly help this person? How can I honestly help this person get into the kingdom of God? and And try to do that, so don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, and God wants us of course, to live uh, that way of life now, back in uh, John uh, chapter seven if if you would turn here now, brethren, to John chapter seven, and uh, something that we've talked about from time to time, but that fits all. Our lives every day, not just the Feast of Tabernacles or the Last Great Day. In John seven verse thirty-seven, throughout this chapter has been talking about Jesus going up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and in verse thirty-seven, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me really believes in Christ, as the Scripture has said." Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And brethren, we ought to be constantly praying to God on our knees, studying this Word, feeding on Christ, asking for God's Spirit to flow into us and out from us to help, to serve, to build, to encourage one another in every way we can. And in our large family, we ought to try to help people in the church, help their children if we can. Help one another as well in all kinds of different ways because we're an enlarged family and god wants us to do that nothing wrong with that at all i remember some people occasionally used to pick at mr armstrong because he had his children in the work and actually four or five of his grandchildren were working in the work and most of them were not converted but they weren't hurting anything and and it was a big work and growing and we could do that And no one worried about it because they knew Mr. Armstrong was God's servant, and he gave his life to God. And if they could be one of his grandsons, named Ted was over, not Ted Armstrong, but uh, was uh, different. Was over at the gas pump. Mr. uh, Party may remember that he worked over at the over at the gas pump. And uh, different ones, uh, I think, it was Larry worked in editorial, and one of the others worked somewhere else. All through the work, well, it worked all right. And sometimes we hire some of our young people here. And should do so if it's a matter of helping the extended family. We love first our family and our personal family and the Church of God family. And we're to learn to give to one another. Sometimes we'll need to help some of you by giving you assistance in third tithe or the love fund to help you if you've lost your job, you're in a bad situation, because we're family We need to check it out, be sure there's a genuine need, but we should try to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. We're to let rivers of living water flow out to help, to encourage, to build up, to serve all those around us, and especially those in the household of God. But this He spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But the Holy Spirit is to flow out constantly toward others and help all of us and help us to help the world as a whole, too, in the work of God. Then we go, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Turn with me at this time to Hebrews uh, chapter 4, brethren. And notice what God says here. Here's another aspect of, of a true Christian. Just what do you mean, Christian? Paul tells us in verse 14, See then, we, we Christians, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. See the different aspects of Jesus? Jesus is our Savior. He died for us. He's the example. He shows us how to live and help and serve and how to, of course, keep the commandments. And here he's high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be sympathized, as it says, with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. He apparently was tempted in every single point of the Ten Commandments. I used to think it meant nearly everything, but I don't think it really means that. In other words, he couldn't possibly be in every type of temptation every one of us has experienced. Some men experience certain types of temptations. Jesus didn't. And Jesus couldn't experience the exact type that women go through. Sometimes they have particular problems. But He was tempted on every point of the law and many aspects of different types of temptation just like we are. That's the point. And yet without sin. He went through the human experience even to the point they killed Him. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. You see, mercy and help and to help in time of need and brethren that's an aspect of christianity you and i have to really learn think of jesus he died for us he's our savior he's our example he's our living savior to live his life in us through the holy spirit but also he's at god's right hand in heaven right now our merciful and faithful high priest we go to god the father through him We pray to God in Jesus' name, but we're to picture, I don't mean a face, but just a general realization, Christ is at God's right hand. He's there. We can say, Father, Father, Lord Jesus, please, I need help in this, and I can't make it. I've got to have your help and realize Christ is there. He's our living high priest. And this, of course, passage tells us there, so come boldly to our high priest in heaven. That's another aspect of being a real Christian. Also, turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Ephesians, brethren, uh, chapter 1. And here we find, in a passage I've sure read to you many times, but we need to understand it. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 19. It's one of these great long verses. You know, Peter said, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. Uh, one reason is sometimes one one sentence lasts four or five verses. <laughs> So we'll break in, talking about the exceeding greatness of God's power toward those who believe according to the work of his mighty power, verse twenty, Ephesians one twenty, which he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, constantly focusing on Christ and seated him at his right hand. You see, he's our merciful high priest in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power and might and the dominion, way above Queen Elizabeth's throne over in England and above the Pope's throne or whoever you want to talk about he's at the throne of the universe and every name a name means everything you stand for he has the power of the whole universe because he acts for God the Father he's the one who said let there be light and there was light every name that is named so that not only in this age but also in that which is to come and he God put all things under his Christ's feet "...and gave Him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all." So, brethren, that's something we constantly have to realize. God put Christ as the active head, the living head of the church of God. He's not the dead head. And He will show you by the fruits who is preaching the full truth, who is doing the work, where is Christ working. And when you prove that to yourself, you can realize, all right, Christ is there. Mr. Meredith may make some mistakes. Mr. Ames may make some mistakes. We have this bad guy down here, even Bill Bowmer, he may make some mistakes. <laughs> we we pick on Bill. He's very highly intelligent, you know, so he, he, he has the most intelligent people have a good sense of humor, so he does. Anyway, he makes mistakes. My wife makes mistakes. Now, she's going to hit me with a roller paper. all of us make mistakes. <laughs> And we have to understand that. But we look to Christ, the living head of the church. Mr. Armstrong may have done little things here and there that were not perfect, but God looked on him as the human leader and backed him up as long as he was overall preaching the truth and doing the work. Did he spend a little bit too much money on the house of God? I don't think so. But I wasn't there. I wouldn't have done that because I I grew up in more humble circumstances and didn't think big in the way Mr. Armstrong did. One of our leading evangelists, well, actually was Ted, but he was in a good attitude at that time. Ted Armstrong said, if God had wanted a little man who would have been picky and very super careful about everything, he would have not called my father to lead the church. He knew my father had dealt with multimillionaire heads of corporations and banks. He knew he would think big, I don't think God shed any tears up in heaven that Mr. Armstrong spent 18 million dollars uh, on the on the auditorium. It costs more costs more than that to build one expensive airplane or one ship. Or you see what I mean? We had one nice building on the earth. The Mormons have their tabernacles. So I don't think God worried too much about that. Uh, but maybe he spent too much on that or on the airplane or made other mistakes. You know what I mean? But he was the one God used to do the work. And we backed Him, those of us who were loyal, in spite of the fact we might not have done it exactly that way, but we tried to look on the fruits. The big picture, who is God using to do the work? And then we could get the thing straight. Christ is the living head of the church. And so we need to believe that. And if we constantly second-guess, if you constantly second-guess the ministry or your pastor, some of you from elsewhere, maybe he'll make a mistake. But us guys here, we make mistakes too. And I can tell you, I loved him dearly like a second father. And I did. And my wife thinks I talk too much about Mr. Armstrong, but I can't forget it. Because he was like a second father to me. And uh, he made mistakes. But he was unusual. He had a magnificent personality and voice. And and God used that capacity So we're to look to Christ. He is the real head of the church. He's so much greater than Mr. Armstrong or me or Mr. Ames or all of us here in this room put together. There's no comparison. He is the head of the church. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 here at this point. And here we find the Christ of the book of Revelation talking about Christianity. Revelation 2 verse 26 he who overcomes, we've got to grow and grow, and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. We've got to rule powerfully in a few years, brethren. You know that these Mao tungs and Hitler's and Mussolini's, they're not going to listen to nice talk from Jimmy Carter if he goes over there and tries to reason with them. I shouldn't pick on him, but you know what I mean. It's becoming pretty obvious. They had the minds of wild animals, these Gentile rulers, and God said that, and that is what we have now. God, they will listen to one thing, overwhelming force, and Christ will use that, but in love and in wisdom, and then when they finally get the picture, then he could start loving and helping. And most of the other people, though, will come back from, you know, concentration camps and slavery, weeping and repenting. And we're to love them, we're to help them, we're to encourage them, we're to put our arms around them physically and emotionally and and say, we love you, it's okay, we're going to help you, we're going to teach the way to live, the whole world's going to get better, it's okay, it's okay, we love you. And then they'll be okay and we'll help them into the millennium. So Christ tells us we're to really overcome to be in that kingdom and we're to think about Him as our living head and is wanting us to grow in the power that He has in ruling all nations with the rod of iron. Then we go back to Revelation chapter 11, which we often quote here, Revelation chapter 11, and in verse 14, Behold, the third woe is coming. Here of these trumpet plagues, the third one. Then the seventh angel sounded. So that is the final woe the last trumpet when Christ returns as King of kings. And they were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world, not up in heaven, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before the God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the One who was and is and is to come, because you've taken your great power and reigned Christ will be on the throne of the universe the nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants the prophets and saints and those who fear your name small and great and should destroy those who destroy the earth we find the Christ of the book of Revelation that's another aspect of Christianity you believe in that Christ not just sweet Jesus not a little Lord Jesus away in a manger, but the Christ who's sitting at the God's right hand, our merciful and faithful high priest, and our coming King who's coming back with total power. Now turn back with me, if you would, to Psalm, the book of Psalms 72. Psalm 72, verse 1. Here he's talking about Christ as he comes back. Give the King your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the King's Son. That's Christ, obviously. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the peoples and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. Boy, we're going to have people hurting and starving all over the world and Christ is going to give them food and heal their bodies. And we'll break in pieces the oppressor. Yes, he'll have a rod of iron when he has to. They shall fear you. The awe of God Fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. Throughout all generations he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish, and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. It says in verse 11, Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper." Often poor caught up in circumstances not of their own making. They just were born in the wrong place and they just didn't get out of it. God is going to help them. The whole way of life will help them get out of it. And He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in His sight. And He concludes the chapter. I'd like to read it all, but I'll just jump here for time's sake. Verse 18. Blessed be, the eternal God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous works. And blessed be His glorious name, everything God stands for forever. Let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. So, brethren, we have to think of this overall concept of Christianity. Just what do you mean, Christian? You mean one who has totally surrendered to God, who has given his life to God above everything else. You mean one who surrendered to let Christ live his life in him and will really live by every word of God. You mean one who focuses on Jesus Christ, who loves and adores and appreciates Christ as his Savior who died for him and who wants Christ to live in him and to clean him up and scrub him out day by day. You want one who has outflowing concern for his brethren and for all the world and wants to build that love and kindness in the extended family, in the church of God, and later over the whole earth. You mean one who believes in Christ is sitting at God's right hand as the great high priest that we go to God on our knees through and talk to God through Jesus Christ knowing He's sitting there and He really understands. He really understands. He was here for 33 and a half years in the human flesh. You mean one who not only believes in Christ as high priest but believes in Christ as the living head of the church who guides His church who leads us, directs us, helps us, uses us And you believe in Christ as the coming King who is coming back literally in a very few years comparatively to set up a kingdom based on love and joy and peace over all the earth. That is a true Christian.